and welcome to the VFX show where we are going with the King of the Monsters, Godzilla, to the sequel, to uh, the sequel that, well, it wasn't really a sequel, it was kind of a relaunch of the franchise of the thing that was a thing that goes all the way back to when I was a kid and on Saturday nights I used to watch Godzilla fighting amazing monsters, which back then was a guy in a suit, is now tons of guys sitting around producing stuff in CG. Uh, and to talk about the show, we have Matt Well and how are you, Matt? Uh, I'm really good. Yeah. And uh, you are now a professor, sir. I don't think you, we mentioned that last time we were on the oh, show. Yeah. Congratulations! Yeah, well, I, thank you so much. I went up for my I, my final uh, rank promotion and uh, was recently notified that I was successful in my pursuit of said promotion. So. Yeah, now so, I'm Professor just, Wallen, do you get to pick professor. what you're a professor of? Because my university, you get to actually state the specific nature of what goes on your business cards. Are you Professor Wallen of incredibly clever things? What, what is it that you put on there? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, my professorship is uh, linked to my school. So I teach in the School of the Arts. So I'm a professor in the School of the Arts. Um, but I teach um, specifically in a department called Communication Arts with um, our good friend Ty Ellingson. And Communication Uh Arts is largely uh, a drawing-based discipline, but um, given sort of the the backgrounds of uh, myself and Mr. Ellingson, um, we take a fairly broad interpretation of the term drawing. And so drawing uh, includes, in large measure, um, uh, visual effects as well, so... (laughs) <laughs> in the way that we've chosen to define it. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't know what it's like uh, at your end. Um, actually, let's, before I do that, Jason Diamond, you're welcome. <laughs> How are I, you? I'm here. Thank you. <laughs> I'm great. I'm not a professor. But I was going to say, like, it, uh, so I have. But it's um, awesome. I'm super stoked for you, Matt. I have a friend I who's a professor. I'd be called the nutty professor, if that's the all nutty, right. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we, you get to sort of pick your professorship a bit more in Australia. Like you can, you don't, you, you are obviously in a, a discipline, which is in a school, which is in a university, but you still get to be a professor of, and you get to pick the of words kind of, uh, mm. you know, information, technology, and organization is an example. Um, but yeah, so uh, great. Well, congratulations. I can't think Thank of you. it happening to a nicer prof. Um, Thank you so, so much. It's, uh, yeah, really, really good. And I know Agreed. that you guys do great work there as well, so... Students benefit. I can attest. I've been there. Oh, that's cool. right. You have. I forgot it about was that. Super cool. <laughs> yeah. In and, our sad and how are building. The, how are the Diamond Bros going, Jason? Uh, good. I would never use the term professor of organization for for us. <laughs> uh, perhaps in Australia, where everything is backwards, that would work for me. Okay. Uh, but uh, no, we're good. Lots of traveling as always. Uh, bidding on stuff and you know doing stuff i can't talk about doing stuff i can't talk about uh well in the middle of your getting about and doing stuff um uh thank you for joining us so we're going to discuss godzilla king of monsters um it's a good old-fashioned monster movie how are you mike i'm well thanks (laughs) yes no i'm uh i'm uh, I'm back. I was recently in LA. I uh, know in LA in San Jose for the Apple uh, Worldwide Developers Conference, which was good. So and, cool. Uh, <laughs> I have just about. By the time this podcast goes out, I'll have submitted my thesis for my PhD. So oh, I can now yes. do a lot more things again because I'm freed up from 63 months of uh, 
Jesus. Research. <laughs> well, that, I think that is just really super awesome, Mike. That is really cool. That's going to be well, let's, most let's, excellent. Let's hold the congratulations until I actually get something um, awarded. <laughs> okay. For now, it's just yeah. submitting. Hey, um, so Godzilla, what do we think? Uh, this is a uh, different Godzilla in the sense a much more sort of up there in your face. We get to see him and his mates than the previous Godzilla, which I think we're going to need to compare it to. Uh, but I guess, Jason, what do you think? Just right out of the gate, did you enjoy the film or not? Uh, I enjoyed the film visually and monsterly. The plot was pretty thin and pretty much the standard, you know, uh, gotta save my kid, gotta save my ex-wife in this case, you know, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> the, it, it was really just like, you know, do what kind of loose draped framework can we do? Like if we drape a sheet over a chair, does it look like a chair? Well, it looks like a chair enough to say that might be a chair. That's the plot. Uh, but the monsters are amazing. And they, like you said, there is a ton of them, uh, which is the only thing that makes the movie reasonable. Uh, there's a lot of humor, obviously, Bradley Whitford in his standard, I think, sort of now sarcastic uh, Cabin in the Woods and whatnot style sarcasm. Uh, it's, I, I enjoyed it, even though the plot was, ugh. Uh, the, the, the CG and the monsters were so good uh, that my brother and I went to see it in IMAX in Burbank when we were in LA and we were just like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> every time a new monster, every time I'll talk about my favorite shots later, but, uh, I was thoroughly entertained. Professor Wollen, what did you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I would really concur with Jason's assessment. I mean, the monsters and the visual effects and stuff are, are really fun. Uh, it's, you know, it's one of those things where like, it's a Godzilla movie. And so there is a degree to which I feel like expectations for like an amazing story aren't super high. Like it's, that's not really necessarily a trope or, or an aspect of the genre of Godzilla movies. That being said, um, I did think that the previous Godzilla movie story wise in terms of execution and yeah. um, narrative was, was really a super fun uh, movie to watch. There was a great buildup of Absolutely. audience expectation that was held back. And I, well, I think the, the, um, the visual effects in this are, are really, really fun. They're really great. And it's just a great popcorn kind of uh, fest. I do think that the, the overall movie and its potential like longevity is something that like you'd want to go back and maybe even watch it again and be like, Oh, that's really cool. I want to see that again. I want to take a friend to see it or something. I, I wouldn't like, because I do feel like the the script and the overall sort of plot thematic elements and stuff. I mean, there's so many great actors in this movie, but they're not really yeah. They're not given a, a, a lot to work with in terms of story. And you do, it does feel like, um, it reminds me, it reminded me a little bit of, um, what we used to jokingly say, I know we've probably said it on this show. We used to talk about Twister in this way where Twister was like a disaster porn, you know, and they, they, they basically, the idea was that the story and the acting and stuff was, was, kind of subpar and that it was really driven by this like need to get to the next, um, you know, tornado scene. And I felt like this movie was really, is just, okay. Like all the plot and all the character 
um, design stuff is really inter, inter, not character design, but character um, the writing of the ca- human characters. It's just development. Yeah. It's just filler to get us to the next like monster uh, emerge, like the next emerging of a monster, or the next like yeah. you know monster mono mono fighting or. And and I think it's like that push in oh the guy from Game of Thrones you know like, totally oh, great. yeah <laughs> but but the but the dialogue and that that execution of the human element it just makes it so it makes it hard to care beyond the visceral I guess yeah are you saying that Ghidra was the cause of all the tornadoes in Twister <laughs> that's I I, seemingly I, I liked that Twister. could be true <laughs> I don't need to go back and look at it again but I liked Twister. I, well, I worked good. on Twister, so I mean, I I, Whoa, okay. I I liked working on it. Um, I mean, I just I, now I see just, the problem is was it that well, I liked it more because there were less like in Twister when it came out, there were some amazing visual effects that were jaw dropping. Not least of which is you didn't have major camera tracking back then, right? So a lot of that mm-hmm. was like a hand tracked solution, which is just awesome. But also, I actually did think there was more actual... I mean, again, it could be age, that I'm now like old and cynical, but I just don't know. I thought it was more fun. The thing about this film is it's like plus five on on monsters, um, you know, minus sort of four on on plot and minus like six for just wasting actors that should have been like Charles Dance or whoever, just should have been more interesting. But the inherent problem with the story for me is... The same problem you get with some um, superhero movies, though not all. We know Godzilla isn't going to die. They're just it isn't going to happen, yeah. right? You can't fake me out by thinking he's dead. I know he ain't going to die, and I know he's going to win. And I know that a lot of cities are going to get destructed. At the, so it's like okay, and and it takes real craft to take the same problem which they have in, by the way, Bond films, and superhero films, and monster yep. films like this, and come up with. The Skyfall version, where okay, you know Bond's not going to die, but Skyfall is a you know a masterpiece of just lighting, of story, of just character mm-hmm. development, like really interesting stuff, and not fall into the whatever came after it that won um, a modicum of, of uh, what was it, the moment of solace, uh, whatever it was, uh, quantum, quantum, quantum I've solace. blotted it out of my head, but it's just you know. Well, oh, I think a modicum of Solomon Solace would have been better. But you know what I mean? Like in that film, same <laughs> yeah. problem, not solved. In this film, I feel like you've yeah. got the same thing. Like this is the quantum of solace to the last film's Skyfall. I don't know. I mean, the, the previous Godzilla was just so clever in not revealing the monster for ages, and yeah. yeah having these things where they've gone to Vegas and it's gone through and you're like, oh my God, that's amazing destruction, but, you mm-hmm. know, wait till we see it. Um, whereas in this one, uh, great monsters, but you just know what's going to happen. So it's very, yeah. very hard to to engage any kind of sense of drama uh, beyond kind of cool kick-assness. And, and I, even I think then... It's not as much fun for audiences either, given exactly yeah. what you're describing. I mean, I, I saw yeah. the the previous Godzilla movie in a super crowded theater, and like the audience was super into it. And when the the first reveal of like the full frame Godzilla where he screams, the audience like cheered. Which I mean, yeah. I don't see audiences yeah. cheer that often in theaters anymore, you know. And I thought that was so great. It made it so much fun, the audience participation factor. And seeing this one in a similar 
at the same movie theater, actually. It's our sort of local theater here, and I go to see it, and it's the same kind of scenario. And, you know, nobody cheered at all. Like, if anything, you know, people snickered and laughed a few times. Some people looked at their phones, you know, but there wasn't that same kind of engagement on the part of the audience. And I think that's really I don't think it's easy to do it. I don't think it's easy to take up the the problem of we're not going to kill this character um, and solve that. You can do it obviously because we've seen that with marvel marvel has time and time again managed to produce a film where i know that they're not going to kill off spider-man but i still want to see the film and i you know mm-hmm. still want to see how they handle things um although given given uh um the uh geez i can't believe i can't remember the movie before Endgame. we'll call we'll just call it that um <laughs> they did kill everybody <laughs> Seemingly, they kind of solved being able to kill everybody and uh, yeah, bring them back. Yeah, but I don't think we really thought uh, they were dead. No, of course not. Because we knew other not. films were still coming out. No, um, but like I, so I, I really liked Gareth's yeah. uh, Godzilla, and you know, there's only eight minutes of Godzilla in that whole thing, but it's it doesn't matter because he does the Jaws trick and he does all you know he does all the cool tricks you would do if that was the movie you could make. Um, but Mike Doherty right. on this one, Mike's presented with the problem that we've seen Godzilla now, right? Like he's no longer right. can right. play that same card. So the director here yeah. has decided to go the other way and say, you know, let's just get lots of them. And, and here's the Which other I thing think I want to get equally... an opinion on. This is, this is a really bizarre thing, but I think the pendulum has swung too far back to respecting the source material. And this is what I mean by that. If you look at some of these characters, they look like the Japanese originals, which were mm-hmm. only the way they were because of the technology limitations that caused them to be done the way that they were. In yep. other words, it feels like some of these, uh, you could have done better character designs, you could have done more plausible character designs, but you wanted it to be authentic to the original 60s. But the trouble with that is that appeals to a really small fan base. Um, well, Monster, Monster now, Zero and Rodan yeah. and stuff like they looked so kind of goofy almost in a way in the, in exactly the way you're describing. I mean, for those exact reasons, staying too close you, to that design. But if you are a filmmaker today and you make um, whatever that, um, like, you know, pick a film, right? And you make the character or the story too far away from the original, then the first word of mouth comes from the diehard fans and they scream mm-hmm. blue murder and it tips the film into being not very good. I'm thinking of a certain fast, um, short, blue, animated... <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was just going to say that, yeah. Um, video game character. And so what happens is you've got this... Uh, we can appeal to the hardcore fans by making it exactly like the original, but then kind of the rest of us go, yeah, but I wasn't actually into the original that much that it's that precious. I would kind of like it just to be good now. And those people are the sort of the second past the early adopters, if you like. Um, so you've got, to, you've got to kind of match both because if you don't get the fan fans, the hardcores, you don't get the opening weekend and then you get this kind of bad word, word of mouth that it's not a great film. But if you, you know, there are films that have come out that at Comic-Con have looked like they're going to be spectacular because the fans there got exactly a reproduction of what they wanted. And the rest of us went, eh, yeah, you know, kind of, I don't know this thing that you're referencing that well so it doesn't make much difference to me and just doesn't seem that great and thanks for playing and i feel like godzilla was suffering they were like we will totally respect the original japanese and for most of us we're like well i can kind of remember that stuff but not like i if rodan had changed it all i was going to be up in arms and getting the theater 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Godzilla has 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 the luxury of not having to be, you know, 1 million percent exactly. You know, it's like, it's not Star Trek. It's not Star yeah. Wars. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to nail it. But my only, my own, I loved the plot and everything of, of Gareth's movie. My only issue was I didn't like the kid. I wish the plot was reversed. Sorry, in this film or in his? Da- no, in Gareth's film. Right. I, I, I wish that the kid had died and we had a whole movie of Brian Cranston and Godzilla instead of the kid in Godzilla. That was just my thing. But obviously that's completely impractical in the modern world. And The number one uh, reason film. I wanted to see this film was for Millie Bobby Brown, like her stuff in um, in Stranger Things. Yeah, she's great. Just, you know, where... She'll make a good Princess Leia someday in a, in a Princess Leia movie. <laughs> Take my money already. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's um, the thing is I think this is a, this is a... I would argue, I mean, maybe minus Brian Cranston, I think this is a, a superior cast to the previous film. But I actually think, uh, yeah, they, they're underutilized. They're totally underutilized. I mean, from uh, what's his nuts? Uh, Chandler, uh, the father. Kyle Chandler, he's, yeah. a, he's a great actor. Millie Bob, Bobby yeah. Brown and Vera uh, Farmiga. Um, and Sally Hawkins is in this. Well, like, you know, and there's, Ken, yeah. let's not forget Ken. Ken what, Nobby? Yeah, oh, he's of course, great. yeah. I mean, he's he's actually good, I think, and <laughs> he works. But um, yeah. He's always good, yeah. I think it's <laughs> just, and even, um, uh, what's his name, Tyrion Lannister, you know, he's, uh, yeah. is that Dutton? Is that his last name? Charles Dutton, is that right? Anyway. Oh, Charles Dutton is rock. From oh, the, you mean right, Charles okay. Dance? Charles Dance, yeah, sorry. But he even he's always Dance so good, but he was given some lines in this movie of dialogue that were yeah. so yeah. corny and scenarios that were so ham fisted that he came yeah. off even looking sort of clownish at moments. And I just It was think, like Die Hard Seven mixed with, with Godzilla. Yeah, yeah. It's just too bad. Yeah. I think it's a shame. It's a missed opportunity in that respect. Yeah. But Gilliam Rashawn is so let's the, talk about that. Gilliam is the uh, MPC uh, visual effects supervisor and the visual effects supervisor on the film, and uh, he obviously worked with the director to manage the visual effects. Which was uh, I can give you some stats on this because we've just spoken to him. It's uh, fifteen hundred, well, actually one thousand five hundred thirty-five shots in the film. The bulk of which was handled by MPC, which I did about six hundred and thirty. Uh, wow. Dineg did about a hundred and fifty. Um, so all the fighting stuff with Godzilla pretty much um, is uh, MPC and they did the sort of detailed facial stuff of the monsters. Uh, Dean Egg did uh, a bunch of stuff, including the whole underwater environment stuff and Mothra behind the waterfall. But um, the big Boston battle that was uh, MPC. It's interesting though because shot count's such a bad thing. Like there's one company that was, um, I'm going to say all in VFX, I think did like 400 shots, but they were like, you know, window shots and like small things, right? So whereas Rodeo did like 120 shots and Method did like 110 shots. But, you know what I mean? Like 110 shots from Method, which included the Chinese bit um, at the beginning and also the underwater sequence where they first see Godzilla are kind of more complicated than doing window replacement shots. So I'm always a bit loath to discuss it in terms of shot count. Having said that, um, MPC's got a terrific character pipeline, as has Deneg. And so, you know the way we see all of them kind of um, awaken, those mm-hmm. different character things? Yeah, that was Deneg. But all the sort of uh, character sort of... Because um, I think what, what, what the challenge is 
with doing this kind of monster work is you want to give the characters of the monsters some sense of motivation and I guess, well, character really. And how do I do that? Because they don't have any dialogue. They don't have human kind of posing. They have to be punching things a lot. And your facial expressions, you can go so far, but if you go too far, they look like they're caricatures or, you know, Pixar-y kind of things and not monsters. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, we do have to get a sense of, in this film anyway, good um, and bad monsters. And leaving outside the cryptozoology agency of Monarch, which is obviously a separate villain, in the film you've got a pretty much a good and a bad team and you want to know who's doing what and, and what they're kind of coming from. And so it's actually a pretty tricky job to animate that and get that um, expressed. And I think that that's where the film excels. I think that work that uh, MPC and Dean Egg did is, is the, sort of the best character stuff in the, or the best stuff in the whole film really. Um, it just felt to me like I was getting what they were trying to portray out of the monsters without them looking like they were silly cartoony or without them looking like they were anthropomorphized. you know, I expected them to break into dialogue at any moment and be talking sheep. I don't know, what do you think? I I agree 100%. I mean, I was, you know, I think I was pretty vocal about this earlier that, you know, the monsters are what why I wanted to see the movie. Yeah. I mean, so, well, in fact, the reason we're so, doing this podcast is because I think you were like, I yeah. want to talk about the monsters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, because, again, I loved Godzilla growing up. I have a wide lenience for the characters of what they could do with them. And I thought that they actually, the only part of the movie that worked that they did a great job on was just setting up each character's, like you're saying, motivation, be it something that you had to guess, like Mothra being, you know, everybody knows Mothra's good, but, you know, you don't know how are they going to tweak it? How's Mothra going to help uh, Godzilla? And um, I thought Mothra looked beautiful. Hmm. I'm going to just jump right to my favorite shot, which is King Ghidra standing on top of a of active volcano yeah. in a wide shot with his wings spread, with like a cross in the front of the frame. is like could not be a more heavy metal album cover totally. and they did it twice <laughs> and they did it twice it's one at the end so when he bites the power line and if i was a director i'd be like how many times can we do this shot i don't care because and that's the thing like very obviously everyone was focused on the monsters and uh ghidra um his his uh i guess i don't know you could call it release sequence um was awesome i mean it it each each of their release sequences really gave the scale of the monster because it's behind ice. You're not sure well, how big is it. People, that, that was Rodeo. Whatever, by and the then way. When, Rodeo did the uh, the ice stuff. Yep. Well, kudos to Rodeo because it. I mean the scale the scale of it. Everything worked perfectly, and the heads coming out. They didn't look like cartoony Chinese dragons. They looked, you know, everything was dead on. Now, Oddly, there was a couple spots, and I couldn't tell if it was because it was like backlight from the like light kicking back on the on Ghidra's face from like a ship or something. But there was a couple shots where it where Ghidra flew at the screen, and the or two of the heads were like almost white, like they were like super blown out without um, a lot of detail. And I assumed it was, but the, the motivation of the light seemed odd because it wasn't, um, 
it wasn't, and maybe I was just lost in the of where I was in space in the story. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was a very difficult problem if you think about it. There's nothing yeah. that gets close to that in terms of how you could uh, imagine the rigging or the animation. Or oh, whatever. absolutely. But yeah, also, you have three separate necks that are just you have to just decide what they're going to do. Yeah, I mean, what what um, uh, I basically discovered from Gillian was that. They wanted to go like a snake kind of thing. They actually tried rigging it as if it would need the muscles to support the neck and it ended up as mm. a three-headed dragon and um, it looked very dragon-esque. And so the director said, yeah, no, I want to go back to the kind of uh, longer. So you ended up with this kind of three snake heads as opposed to a kind of a triple mm-hmm. dragon with a lot more muscles in the neck to support the weight. Yeah. But if you think about that, once you tell the animator it's a snake, but you can't do snake body stuff because clearly, yeah. <laughs> you know, like a, a couple of yards down the snake's neck in a normal sense, it's it's using its back body to counterweight and counter swing and all that kind of stuff. Right, and wings and But you can't do that, right? Cause you, yeah. yeah, so it was actually a, a hugely complex problem to make us not feel like it was overbalanced or um, unbalanced in some sort of sense that the movement, you know, would rip it apart because... Oh yeah, one head going one it way. It seemed one like way. there was a lot of a lot of creative framing too around being able to oh, yeah. utilize and that kind of animation technique. Because when you first see uh, Ghidorah and you see the heads come into frame, um, at, and when at, sort of right after his reveal, um, you're seeing the heads almost essentially disembodied, right? You're not seeing them mm-hmm. where they connect to the body. And at my first take on it was that, oh, wow, it's they're really staying true to the kind of, uh, you know, the string puppeteer kind of look. But then it started yeah. to get much more dynamic in terms of the uh, the movement of the neck and the heads, just like you're saying. And But they, they rarely uh, would show it um, connecting directly back to the body. It was only in those sort of full the full body shots in the the larger well, he's, battles. He's like 520 feet high, or in my case, 500, yeah. 150 meters high, which makes him about 125 feet taller than Godzilla, right? So mm-hmm. um, it's a yeah. very hard thing to have these long, long things not have some kind of structural support and and just not look goofy, I reckon. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a challenge that we underestimate sometimes. It's like, you know, you go, oh, I want this thing. And you go, well, how is the hell is that going to like work? And it's like, I don't know, but you make it work. And it's like these animators get these, you kind of like motion capture that. Oh, by the right. way, having <laughs> <Yeah>. said that, <laughs> they did. Um, I should tell you this. I didn't know this, but uh, to get an idea as to what they should do, now, and I really mean this as an idea, not obviously as literal, they, they did spend a week uh, with some actors doing uh, mocap and it was all about just getting interpretations from those mocap actors about how they might kind of approach the problem. Uh, so there hmm. was no sense that they were going to use that data and feed it in to drive Godzilla as a direct, you know, retargeting. But, you know, like, like, like a, an actor will interpret the kind of backstory. So if it's, I'm, you know, Gonna pounce? Like, how do I sort of do I crouch to 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 spring out? Right. Do I go back to get full height to be intimidating before I attack? You know, like I've seen animals do both of those things: um, go small to pounce and go large to to threaten. And so they were trying to explore those things. So they spent a whole week, which I thought was fascinating, with actors, getting them. Um, and I use the term actors properly because that's what they were doing. They were obviously mm-hmm. mocap specialists doing. Yeah. 
stuff that would allow them to interpret some suggestions of, I'm going to even say body language. It's not even like the kind of right term, right? Because if you're, I'm one of the heads, but I mean, do I, do I look to the left? Do I tilt my head at this point? Do I kind of retract my neck? And then it's just like reference material for them to just like sort of poke back at and say, Oh, Oh yeah, and you get those little inspirations. Well, I'm not going to do that, but you know, it's like nobody likes looking at a blank piece of paper. But if you had something, even if it was wrong, you, you your brain starts going, "Oh, I'm going to fix it," and then that kicks you in the gear. Yeah, like you uh, know when when somebody goes, they really they're really mad at this point, and you expect them to yell, and instead of yelling, the actor chooses to go really quiet, and you go, "Oh my god, that was such a great choice," because it wasn't the way I would have thought. It was the exact opposite, but man, it just I was just terrified it was just so whatever and so you've got to allow people real people to make those uh decisions and so they did that which i thought was just fascinating um and it totally allowed them to you know try five different things in a day as opposed to um you know in the old days you try five different things and it'd take you what matt about three or two months to get (laughs) five full sequences kind of plotted out through um through even a really good uh pipeline what did you guys think about the storm sequences? Um, I I not sure I remembered, and maybe this is just something they really obviously couldn't do, you know, back in the fifties or whatever. But um, I kind of liked the fact that that Ghidra had like this big storm around him, so it wasn't like everyone wasn't here comes Ghidra, you know. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, there's a massive storm brewing, you know, over whatever, and then it, you have to you have your cryptozoologists who were like that's Ghidra you know um I thought the storms looked really good like didn't look overly sandmany or like you know uh what's it called uh they do add a lot of production value don't they yeah well, it adds environment and yeah. and lighting changes and all sorts of stuff to the city that's about to get crushed you know at least they didn't blow up New York again no, Boston yeah. got it this Boston, time. Boston, yeah. yeah. I, I didn't mind Boston. seeing Boston destroyed. But, um, <laughs> no. Wait, 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 wait. What are we got against Boston? Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, it's not New York. Yeah. yeah. Not LA. Yeah. Or San Fran. It was San Fran last time, wasn't it? Yeah, and they showed yeah. San Francisco all uh, growing back, which uh, was kind of fun to see. That's actually one of the things mm-hmm. in maybe in keeping to the storms. I thought that stuff was great. I love the... Um, the the reveal of both Rodan uh, on the from the volcano I thought oh, there was some great mm-hmm. um, uh, sort of effects animation stuff they were doing in there and then the other one that was in I think they said it was somewhere in Germany I can't remember what monster it was but it comes out of this big um, oh the like the mammoth the spider yeah, yeah out of the forest kind of mountainside thing. And the whole map, like when you see it, you see them, and it's in the trailer. I think you see the oh, mountain yeah, yeah, yeah. The, whole the whole thing moves. Stands up. Yeah, I thought that was really yeah, that, a neat, and because it, it worked scale wise, like it was a believable scale. It looked correct, yeah. like as a as a huge sort of earth uh, moving kind of sim. And I thought that was really neat. The other thing they did in this movie a lot of, and it kind of connects to those reveals, and and I think it connects too to the storm was there's a huge amount of work in terms of both design and visual effects implementation of these really strange um, kind of the, uh, what they call them, the, uh, the environments for the, what's the name of the, I can't, I'm drawing a blank on the secret organization. 
where they monarch. have monarch, yeah, all monarch, their yeah. underground bunker spaces and these yeah. kind of gangplanks and catwalks and elevators and you know uh, these kind of militaristic, semi-futuristic, but sort of yeah, yeah, and I, a lot of that kind of work I thought was also. Uh, really interesting and and in some shots in particular some of them I thought were really well done there's one where they show uh, a huge environment from above and um, there's like uh, part of the central core of it is collapsing I think because one of the monsters is escaping and there's tiny tiny little people running around on a gangplank and uh, it's sort of a helicopter shot I think and I thought some of that stuff was really really great as well as the um I think a, a lot of the, the, what's that thing called? The Osprey or whatever, the sort of helicopter plane. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's some some shots of those like landing and taking off that I thought were uh, also pretty successful. Just that kind of hard surface stuff too. What do we think about Godzilla's man cave? He's uh, uh, shit. Atlantis? <laughs> yeah. Atlantis? Yeah. Uh, seemed a shame to blow I it thought- up. That seemed to have some valuable artifacts that some archaeologists would have quite liked to have had a look at. Yeah, instead of just nuking it. Yeah. Uh, When Mothra ended up waking him up anyway. I mean, I've got Uh, to say, the I'm going to blow you up with a bomb to supercharge you. I don't know, I just felt like if I'd have been in... I'm sorry to go back to the writing, but I would have just loved to have seen more discussion because they they hinted at it with this, like you mentioned, I think, Matt, rejuvenation of Vegas and Mm -hmm. places. Mm-hmm. And that that San Francisco had suddenly come back much more than had been thought before because of some, and I thought, couldn't we just build that up a bit more? Like, like why these monsters and the, the relationship to the nuclear thing was. I always thought a, a very interesting thing in the originals. This you know subtext of uh, yeah. the monster. Yeah. But couldn't there have been some like they had to go to to his lair to to activate some sort of isotope, you know, that he couldn't do himself. That was like, <laughs> you know, used to be done by the old world people who were there. Cause they show Kong and all that yeah. kind of those other stuff. They showed, they showed Kong as monster zero, right? On the map. Did mm-hmm, you guys yeah. think that Kong was going to make an appearance? I kind of did at that point. I thought Kong's going to come I, in. I didn't lost. think Kong, I didn't, didn't, well, they show shots of him in the beginning, you know, from, uh, from, from Skull, Skull Island. Island. Yeah. Um, and they and they reference Skull Island a fair bit, but um, they you know this is the problem with the internet. Like I already know Adam Wingard just finished shooting monster, you know Kong versus Godzilla, so I knew they were gonna tease it. I didn't assume you would see Kong because that would sort of defeat the purpose. And there's plenty of monsters in here, but um, I. Uh, I, I did, to your original question, I did like the, like, I turned to my brother and I was like, oh, shit, Atlantis, that's cool. Like, you know, it makes sense if you're going to go for, like, ancient beings that you would go to Atlantis, especially since you already have the conspiracy theory stuff from Bradley Whitford where he's talking about hollow earth mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. So it's like, you know, that's cool. The, um, the, um, Ken, uh, uh, what's the Watanabe getting out and and getting like super fried by the you know by the um, radio radioactivity? I thought it was really nice um, his interaction with Godzilla when you see the eye and him looking at him and like understanding like that was played really well. I thought because you would just assume Godzilla would be like, dude, you're in my space, get out, you know. <laughs> but 
I thought that whole environment was cool. The lava falls, it looked a little like Mustafar underwater. Um, I actually thought too, the, the underwater stuff, there's actually one really weird edit in the movie where they're on a, I couldn't quite figure out when they got on the submarine and all of a sudden they're on this giant submarine. And I was like, wait, what? Wait, we're on a submarine. Okay. And then they go from like, and then they go from like the top of South America then well, yeah. mentioned Venezuela, and then they're in Antarctica. Yeah, the world is extremely tiny in the Godzilla <laughs> yeah. universe. But, but I did think that the um, that was one other thing I was going to mention. I, I, I recently was watching. Um, I wasn't watching anything actually. I was I was watching. This is so sad. I was watching uh, stuff go by in my Twitter feed, and there was a. It might have been. Um, I, it might have been like Todd Vaziri, or maybe it was something Ian uh, posted on his new site. But it was. Uh, they were talking about um, uh, the hunt for Red October and some of the work that was done to create oh, yeah. the submarines on the motion control stage, lighting them and using smoke um, and motion control to create the the appearance of the submarines uh, underwater. You mean dry for wet? Yeah. Yeah, shooting dry for wet. Yeah. Right, and and there was a bunch of photographs of uh, the old. Um, uh, motion control stage at the Kerner uh, optical uh, facility in San Rafael, and and uh, it was really fun looking at some of those images. And I, I hadn't really thought about you know submarines until this movie. And then there's uh, a whole sequence that's taking place underwater, but I'm I'm guessing that it's uh, almost all digital environments. And I think um, it's cool. It's a that's a kind of thing you don't see a lot of, or I can't think of too many things recently that I've seen where uh, maybe I'm drawing a big blank here, but of, of submarine um, stuff where you're seeing the whole sub and a huge environment and a, and it's actually a large underwater vessel. And I thought those shots were um, they were they were neat because they felt um, from a design standpoint and from a, a sort of a visual effect standpoint, it felt like something that I haven't seen a lot of lately. And so I really, I thought that stuff was cool the underwater. Yeah. And the hunt for red October done by our friend, Scott Squires. Yeah. Which I have had conversations with him about, about what you're exactly yeah. what you're talking about. How yeah. they did that sub stuff. But the trouble with any of that underwater stuff, that stuff, all this is you just don't have that much depth in underwater, right? Like yeah, if they're right. really underwater, you get no light. But even if you're yeah. not that underwater, you lose it at about six to eight feet and it starts to fall off and then you lose almost all color palette and then you really don't get to see, you know, like think about it, if you're in your swimming pool, you don't get to see everything clearly from one end of the pool to the other if you open your eyes underwater. But, right. but that's nothing compared to what happens if you try doing the same thing in the ocean, you know, yeah, the right. beach. Um, so yeah, these kind of it's a movie. Yeah, well, don't exist either. So I know, I know. But nevertheless, it's really hard. It's yeah. the same problem that with um, there too. That one and the problem of how fast you get a large object to move because you know the legs of Godzilla in this film would literally break the sound barrier if not get close to being <laughs> you know impossible in how fast they move. And yet, you know, if you because that was always my problem with. Um, uh, what was the one um, where they were inside the robots um, that ILM did? You know, oh yeah, Pacific, Pacific Rim, Rim. Yeah, Pacific Rim. Yeah, is that like I move my arm and it takes you know a couple of seconds, and the big arm outside would take a couple of minutes, and there's just no correlation between a miniature moving yeah. their arm and a giant moving their arm. They just don't move at the same speed. Well, that that's one of, that brings of constant. up. 
Yeah, and that brings up something that, like, I think in the trailer for this, and I, I'll be honest, I, I don't remember if this is in the movie uh, or if it was only in the trailer. In the trailer, there's a shot where Ghidorah and Godzilla, they run towards each other, and the speed that they're yeah. moving for their scale is way too fast. Was that in the movie, too? I had to. I don't remember. Mm, I don't the movie. think it was, I mean, but that I was had, a little WrestleMania moment. Yeah, yeah I mean, and the, it, it just—it looked really corny. But it made me think of when we were talking about um, not Infinity War, but um, Endgame. And one of the cool things in the sort of final battle sequence in Endgame, I thought, was when Ant Man becomes Giant Man. And I thought yeah. that one of the things they did really well with Giant Man, who's Maybe not quite as big as Godzilla, but he gets pretty big in in that mm-hmm. sequence. And his motion when he's moving and when he's running or when he's swinging his arm, he's moving at a speed that is probably still a little fast. But it's like he's it seems much more appropriate to his scale. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the yeah, thing well, that so the opening. Oh, go ahead, Mike. I was going to say the thing that I was going to say. If you're listening to this at home and trying to get a handle on what we're saying, it's like if I showed you a black screen and a, a silver ball just dropped through frame, you would know the scale of that from how fast it fell. So if we assume there's not slow motion going on, if it went through frame, just like, you know, the size of my hand kind of thing, ball just went straight through frame really quickly, you'd say, okay, I don't know how big it is. It takes a really long time to go down through frame and there's no slow, slow motion going on. You know it's a really big thing because it has to be filmed a really, really far way away and gravity is a constant and so without any visual Mm -hmm. reference without any clues of depth without any depth perception whatsoever on a round object that's got no um haze or anything you just know inherently whether it's big or small and um you know think in your kitchen if you drop a pea like it just doesn't take 12 (laughs) half a second to get to the ground right um and so once you start having this huge thing moving really quickly, your brain is going, oh, I know how big that is because it moved really quickly. It can't be that big. And you, you don't have to articulate that. You just know that from living in the world. Yeah. It's like a man in a suit. Yeah. So um, I interrupted you. Oh, no. So I was going to, to your point, I thought a really good, like right out of the gate, clue for that scale clue for that was the opening scene where you see Godzilla like you basically see the end of Gareth's Godzilla movie from a different point of view sort of how they did with um opening of whatever that Batman was or whatever where they you know he was what they were watching them fight from another angle um you you when you see Godzilla, they just look up and he just walks by them super slow. You know, you're like, a, it's dramatic, but wait, no, he's he's fucking huge, mm-hmm. and he's gonna move really slow in reference to what you're doing for him. He's just taking a stroll, right? But from your point of view, he is moving super super slow, and I thought that was a great. A, it was a great shot. Very well executed, the environments and everything was was really good, but it really was at like you, to your point. It just gave you a good depth scale, uh, not depth scale, uh, uh, size, you know, scale reference for Godzilla. So as you moved into things and you saw, you know, uh, Ghidra, your your brain was like, okay, we're we're in the mode of thinking about giant things, mm-hmm. big things. And I think that's one of the things that I always love so much in movies with a lot of um, computer graphics, like or with a lot of visual effects, is when they do scale 
and they do scale, you know, macro and, you know, uh, massive, you know, I, I love the, uh, macro and micro, like I love the like large scale stuff. Another thing that it just, as we're talking about the, the examples and the, the idea of a pea falling in your kitchen, that just made me laugh as a, as an example, but another good example of the scale that I always thought was a, a really good one is, um, the destruction of, I can't remember the name of the city, but the the destruction by the the new Death Star test of the city in uh, Rogue One. Oh, when yeah. you see that yeah. explosion at a distance from where, um, like, Forrest Whitaker and the the heroes yeah. are hanging out before they take off, the the speed with which we're watching it explode and we're watching everything sort of fan out and collapse. It looks really, really slow, almost like a static frame. It's moving so slow because it's so massive and it's so far away. And it's only as uh, the sort of debris and detritus or whatever, you know, is getting closer and closer to camera that it accelerates in terms of speed. And I feel like that's an example of scale done really, really well. Yeah. Um, Something else I wanted to flag on this, which I thought was interesting, uh, MPC's pipeline for this is, you know, the standard kind of pipeline. Um, when I say standard, I mean, it uses Maya and uh, RenderMan and Nuke. Um, and we don't talk about those tools that much because it's, I mean, I guess we talk about renderers a bit, but we don't talk about like Maya and Nuke that much because they're just such a almost de facto option these days. I mean, there are other things being used, Mari, obviously Substance and Katana and Houdini for stuff but at the core of it you know you've got that Maya base which has now become really a platform rather than anything else right like it's the yeah. the Maya platform that gets used what was different between this and the previous one because MPC did the previous one as well is they were using Renderman 18 which was pre the RIS you know stuff in ray tracing in, um, in Renderman and this mm-hmm. one was actually using Renderman 21 and I was wondering whether you were conscious at all I mean from my point of view I, I guess I was looking at it knowing that, but the difference between a, um, a full-on mega ray tracing solution that they were using for these fight sequences in terms of the lighting now versus what they were doing back then when you had to be much more sort of tricking it out. Do you think that just goes to, I mean, can you, can you tell the difference, do you think? I, I wouldn't have known that at all if you hadn't with that, I mean, I, I, w- I wouldn't have known that looking at it. I mean, I think, you know, with most modern, you know, ray tracers, like the the, the degree to which you have um, and you get so much more kind of just but by... But they weren't using the, a modern ray tracer when they were using version 18 of Renderman on the previous one. That's my point, you see what I mean? Like right. they are using one now. And I agree it would be very hard. You'd need to be a really, you know first A-grade professional to pick a Renderman high-quality ray trace versus an Arnold high-quality ray trace. Um, I guess it just seems like there's so much more, there's there's so many more shots in this one than in the first yeah. one too, though. So I think that that maybe, you know, increases well, the I'm, level of complexity. Tomorrow I'm going to the um, the premiere of Toy Story 4. And mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Sorry? I said, oh boy, I was excited. Well, but I mean, the thing is for me, that really looks different. I mean, I, I and I, in a good way, yeah. but I mean, that really says, oh my God, they're using risk process. You know, it's, it's full on new render man versus, I mean, I take nothing away from the previous films, but the quality of the porcelain in the shorts and the quality of the um, 
just the materials, the rubbers, the things that we've seen in the mm-hmm. materials that make up these characters in the short alone, which I, I you know, obviously looked at on a big Mac screen, um, you know, with a sort of a decent download. But nevertheless, I'm looking forward to seeing it in the cinema. But even from that trailer, the characters look significantly better to me than they've ever looked before while still looking authentic, right? I don't think Woody doesn't look like Woody, but Bo Peep, yeah. who, who skipped a generation because Bo Peep wasn't in the third film, she was in the second. So the last time I saw that character was oh, quite a few generations of technology ago. Yeah, sure. Um, I just feel like that's a very noticeable difference. This film... Well, because they're non-organic. I mean, they're previously organic <laughs> things, you know, felts and porcelains and plastics and whatever... Versus environment like, you know, clouds and smoke and monsters that have no basis in reality other than maybe it's a lizard, maybe it's a, you know, a bat or can I just point out the mammoth with gorilla arms? It's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, what, I was like, that a oh, look at the mammoth. That, like, and I was like, I have no idea. That thing and the weird spider, are those like, those must be yeah. monsters that have some history in like old Godzilla movies, but I didn't know. I mean, they know said what there's 17 were. of them. They said there's 17 uh, monsters or whatever. They only, sh- I, I don't think they showed all 17, but. Yeah, we saw maybe like intrigued. a half dozen of them or so, right? Yeah. I was pretty intrigued by the mammoth with gorilla arms. So. <laughs> So you feel- look awesome, but like not not. I mean, from a design standpoint, yes, but like the the render and the 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 texture and everything, like it, it looked like a big hairy thing. Yeah, with with tusks. Just, that that yeah. would be an accurate description. It looked like a big hairy thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah. Te- it's technologically, yeah. like the, from the rendering standpoint, I mean, I just I don't know that I would have even thought twice about it. It was, it's, it's yeah. I think that's a testament to the success of uh, the visual effects, but also the success of the underlying technologies. You know, I, I think I really appreciate that you, I, I think it's cool to mention uh, Maya and to mention Nuke, you know, kind of sort of the, the meat and potatoes, the sort of backbone of so many uh, pipelines. So really every pipeline I've ever worked at, um, well, Nuke maybe slightly newer, um, uh, well, not not newer now, but newer from my last big show I worked on. But um, I think, uh, yeah, the the sophistication of the sort of back end, the development, the the software companies, as well as the um, you know the in house teams that are building their own sort of proprietary tool sets and um, the connective tissue that kind of allows them to do you know X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, it, we're really seeing such a an exponential. Um, uh, growth in the effectiveness, and I think, uh, from a teaching standpoint, the user-friendly quality of so many of these tools, um, I think, is something that's also really, really exciting. You can always still get under the hood and, and ha- under- address the uh, the hyper-technical aspects of whatever it is that you're wanting to do. But um, so many sort of uh, visual artists now uh, have the ability to access uh, to access these tools and produce uh, really impressive. Uh, high quality work um, without necessarily having uh, the same level of uh, technical prowess um, in terms of the sort of the machinery underneath. Yeah, yeah. Gillam actually, when I was talking to him, was saying, as a visual supervisor, was saying that not only is it that, but he 
Um, he would sort of was tempted to try and get some more real-time stuff happening on this film. Couldn't quite do it for the time scale because uh, obviously these films get their pre-production, previous stuff done, what, two, three years ago, right? By him. Just, you know, obviously had to be done before they went into principal photography. But he would like to see even more of that because it's um, a very collaborative tool and it's much more user-friendly, just to, to use your point. It's much more inviting now to be able to get people to collaborate with this technology because it's not so um, hostile an environment. Well, and, you, and you know so much more about that real-time stuff, I think, than 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 I would for sure. And I feel like that's that's the next thing, you know, uh, yeah. that is, is coming. And I don't think it's quite at that point yet where it's quite as, uh, maybe quite as sort of turnkey for, for just the general artists. There's so much setting it up to make it function correctly. But, hardware but don't we think that if we're having this podcast in three years time, that a significant, like on a 40%, 50% of the film will be real time. Yeah. Like yeah. there's no way I can imagine that if we went forward 72 months from now, we wouldn't be discussing, you know, oh, well, this stuff was all done in real time and then they did these bits offline or, or just re-rendered them sort of near real time, right? Like there was real time, but then they just did a, you know, a cleaner pass for the final. Because yeah, that's, it, I mean, that's how I would see it working. You would do, you know, your, you would do your sequence in real time, watch it mm-hmm. and then you know, with tweak that, it almost like a video, almost like a video yeah, game, but with accurate yeah. lighting and stuff. Just maybe it's a bit no, noisy, no, maybe it's a bit whatever, yeah. and then you just press the you know play button. And even if it was like three times slower, you know, the fact that a, yeah. a, a one minute shot took three minutes instead of <laughs> instead of the one minute real time would not bother you in the slightest, yeah. right? You'd just be getting ready for the no. next shot. Yep, done. <laughs> well, because you'd feel confident in its in its performance. Yeah. You've dialed everything in, and you're and. And you're not, you know, like you said, maybe it's noisy, maybe it's something else, but the the key would be getting the the frame rate high enough that you would be able to feel like you you feel the motion and the kinetic yeah. nature of what but, you're doing, and then you can say, oh yeah, yeah, make the sun a little better and make the rays a little sharper. Well, just we need you, we need you on set to be able yeah. to be moving <laughs> lights and having the digital version of that immediately. Uh, as you're moving the light, update as much as it does on the person that's standing in front of the physical light you're moving. So you can make those yes. choices and say, hey, I want a bit more backlight. And you yep. see in your split, both of those things in real time happening. Now, when I say in real time, like if it's 24 frames a second or you know 30 or even 15 and it's a bit noisy or 24 and it's a bit noisy and then it just settles, yeah. you, know, you don't care. Like as long as it's not no. crap yeah. vision... Um, and you can authentically yeah. judge how things are falling in terms of light, uh, then you're fine. You did just, uh, if I may, just a little cross-promotional thing. You did just have uh, an awesome conversation with um, uh, my old uh, co-worker, Kim Libreri, uh about the, all, this very thing on uh, your other show, Mike, which was, if anybody hasn't heard that one, it was an excellent, excellent conversation all about um, kind of the potential of and, and the sort of state of the art of the real-time rendering. I mean, it was, it was a great conversation and really inspiring. Yeah, I've got to say that uh, Visual Disruptors podcast, which is... Um on FX Guide, it was such a joy for me talking to Kim. I mean, I like Kim and obviously I'll talk to him any day and twice on Sundays, he's just a great guy. But yeah, he's awesome. It was, uh, yeah, 
he is one of the most influential people in um, filmmaking today. Like his, no doubt, his role in uh, as um, CCTO, is there a CCTO, CTO, sorry, CTO, of, um, yeah, yeah, of Epic. I don't know why I said CC, <laughs> CTO of Epic. Um, that doesn't give him enough credit. Like he is so influential in what's happening, and we're going to see that not just from Kim, but generally as Lion King rolls out in a little while and then the mm-hmm. new um, Star Wars uh, TV show, which is all done with virtual production. Um, yeah, even by the end of the year, it's going to be, a, a, I reckon, a big game changer. The, um, the Lion King stuff alone just looks spectacular. And that's a, yeah. another MPC yeah. with help from um, Mag Opus. Just amazing stuff. Well, in fact, I look forward to that. That, that will be an excellent and, boy, probably fairly long uh, podcast when we get to do the uh, review of The Lion King, which is coming out actually pretty soon. It's not that far off. Is that um, this summer? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a blockbuster, yeah. future blockbuster. I mean, it's um, it's a dramatic difference in um, in how they you make a film. Just spectacular. And that's still, that's Rob, uh, Rob Legato's on that still, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. Rob Legato was perfect. So same I was same lucky enough to go on set. So. Oh, excellent. Similar team, yeah. It's My a, friend was a key grip on that. Yeah, yeah. And so it's really significant, and we'll discuss this when we get to it, that people like Key Grips collaboratively were able to contribute in a digital world. Um, the question we're going to mm-hmm. discuss when we get to that one is, is that an animated film or is that something else? Mm. But that's for a future podcast. Um, <laughs> so I think we'll wrap up this one and say thank you so much, uh, everybody, for being on the show and, and for listening. Um, we've had a bunch of people sending us suggestions of things that we should see and we're totally taking that on board. As I said at the outset, I've just finished a major 63-month-long project, so um, hopefully <laughs> I'll be a bit more available to help out. I do apologise that uh, we haven't been publishing as much as we yeah, maybe did in the past, but that will change. Matt, um, thank you so much. Where can people um, connect with you and uh, see some of your insights on social media? Uh, yeah, you can always find me uh, on my website at mattwallen.com for all the stuff that I'm uh, doing here and there. And then uh, I'm at Virginia Commonwealth University um, in Richmond, Virginia, uh, in the School of the Arts. And uh, Jason, actually, I've got a question for you. Do you Have you moved to Instagram? I talk to people and they're like, it's all Instagram for our industry now. Um, I... I think so. I mean, Twitter, I I check, but I really don't post as much as I used to. I just sort of browse it. I do like Instagram for a lot of stuff. Um, certainly visual. It's a very visual medium as far as a app for posting stuff. I, I'm not as mobile as you as in I'm not on set as much or just flying around yeah. as much as you. I use my iPad a lot and it bugs the bajillicans out of me that there isn't a Instagram yeah. iPad I mean, I would love a, an app for the iPad. I mean, obviously you can run the I would old like Instagram a desktop one app, app too. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of, that's the thing that stops me, I guess. I mean, I don't stop me, but it just, I don't do it yeah. as much. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, to, to uh, take that as a segue, I am on Instagram, Jason Diamond. <laughs> Excellent. And, uh, and many other platforms as just my name. Okay, and I'm obviously Mike Seymour, but here's the thing. This is a this is like a secret. I hope I hope you know you understand this. 
there's a big anniversary coming up and I'd keep an eye on FX Guy in the coming weeks and months because there's some serious movement in them their hills. There's a very, very, very big anniversary coming up. I won't say any more right now, but I'll probably tease more next time we talk. But for now, you can find me on uh, FX Guide as always. Um, we're going to have a story on uh, Godzilla, um, which will run through stuff on NPC. So we've also got a few other stories. I, uh, I really enjoyed doing a story I did recently on Rocketman uh, at CineSite, which was uh, a lot of fun. And um, and as always, we'd like to cover stuff in a range of areas, including you know odd things like we did something on them. Uh, a Eurovision thing and, and other stuff. So if if I could put out a plea, not just to those of you that listen, which I really appreciate, but if those of you that are in productions um, and you want to, you know, discuss maybe a technical aspect of a project you're on, please feel free to contact me directly. I'm Mike S at fxguide.com. Uh, it isn't just that, and you know, you probably noticed this, it isn't just the big end games that we cover on FX Guide. We really like to zero in on, um, you know, the like a, a smaller project or whatever, something that's unusual but interesting and engaging because, um, you know, we don't all work on major, mega, mega blockbuster films and we certainly like all of them. So from whatever it is, um, I, the only thing is I, I have to call sort of stop on the number of people that request that I promote their fundraising attempts for films. Like the number of times, I get like one a week, someone, can you publicise that I've got a, uh, a Kickstarter project for this short film and I, I just, we can't put all of those on FX Guide. But other, if you've got an actual project, <laughs> TV show, uh, film clips, uh, commercials, yeah, we're really keen to hear about you, especially if we can deep dive into sort of the technical aspects of it. Um, but with that, I'll say thank you so much, guys, for listening. I... I <laughs> I just feel like one of us should say on this podcast before we finish. So I'll say goodbye and just finish with ah, Godzilla. See you guys. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.